As we turn to Ezekiel 37. Turn in your Bibles tonight to Ezekiel chapter 37. A man came home from work one evening, and he was tired. But his son was just getting started. He had all of the energy that he didn't expend. His dad was out of energy. The son wanted the dad to play. Dad wanted his space. So as the boy said, Daddy, let's play. And dad had the newspaper open. He had to think quickly. And so there in the newspaper was an ad, and the ad featured a picture of the earth taken from the moon. So it was a picture of the world. The dad thought quickly, grabbed his scissors, and cut that picture up in little tiny pieces. Gave it to the boy and said, tell you what, you put this picture of the world together, and when you're done, we'll play. Dad thought he could, you know, buy 30 minutes, 45 minutes of time. In about three minutes, the boy had it figured out, and he brought it over to his dad, put together and taped up. And Dad was surprised that the boy could put it together so quickly and asked him how. The boy smiled and said, easy, Daddy, and he turned it over. See, on the back is the face of a man. And it was pretty easy to figure that out. So when I put the picture of the man together, the world came together. The Bible is like that, isn't it? When you insert Jesus Christ, the God-man, into any portion of the Bible, it all comes together. Very soon, the nation of Israel is going to figure that out. They're going to understand that when you put their Messiah, the one that the Father sent into this world, to redeem the lost sheep of the house of Israel, they will be restored and returned back to their Creator. As we begin tonight, I'm going to read a quote to you from the 1911 Encyclopedia Britannica that had an interesting comment on the nation of Israel and the Hebrew language. They said, quote, The possibility that we can ever again recover the correct pronunciation of ancient Hebrew is as remote as the possibility that a Jewish empire will ever again be established in the Middle East. That was 1911. Enter 1948. When the nation was reborn in a day. And if you go to Israel today, you discover a couple of things. Number one, they're speaking the ancient language. Number two, they're doing it in the very homeland that Encyclopedia Britannica said was impossible. Chapter 33 is where Ezekiel began focusing the prophecies away from the judgments of the nations and onto the restoration of the nation of Israel which this chapter will amplify as we go through it. And it's important. It's important because God is going to do something that will so awaken the people of Israel that are back in the land today. But though they're back, they're not awakened to the fact that God is their Lord, their protector, their deliverer, and Yeshua is their Messiah. At the end of this chapter in verse... Well, down in verse 14 of this chapter, it says, Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it. That is what God wants the Jews to know, that God has spoken certain things about them. 
And they're going to be fulfilled. And when they are, they're going to get it. When Count Baron von Zinzendorf, who started a missionary movement called the Moravian Movement, was tried for his faith before King Frederick of Prussia. And the king said to young Zinzendorf, show me something, one thing, just one thing that proves the Bible is infallible. Zinzendorf said quickly, the Jew, the Jew. That man knew his Bible. And we who know our Bibles also understand that truth and that fact. The survival of the nation of Israel throughout the years, and especially in our recent history of 1948, is nothing short of a miracle. They have survived, and they've more than survived. They have thrived into a $10 billion per year economy, being the fourth largest exporter of citrus in the world, the third largest exporter of flowers in the world. And there are some events that have been fulfilled that we're going to see and have yet to be fulfilled that we'll see in these chapters. But first, God has, you might say, a bone to pick with Ezekiel. So let's get into it. The hand of the Lord came upon me and couldn't resist. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord. And he set me down in the midst of the valley, literally the battlefield. And it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass by them all around. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. One translation puts it beautifully, O sovereign Lord, only you know the answer to that. That's a good reply. Here's the picture. Israel has become dry, dead, desolate because of their deportations, their several destructions, and they are awaiting in this vision national resurrection. Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. Now the Hebrew word for breath in this verse is the word ruach. And it is the word that not only is translated breath, but is sometimes translated wind or spirit. In fact, the term in Hebrew, the Holy Spirit, is Ruach HaKodesh. And it could be literally translated here that he was to prophesy, Surely I will cause spirit to enter into you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you, that is tendons, and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise and a suddenly a rattling and the bones came together, bone to bone. What an exciting thing for Ezekiel. 
what he was thinking as he saw this in the vision. Now, it, it does sound a little spooky, almost like a Hollywood horror film, these bones coming together, the phalanges connecting to the metacarpals, the metacarpals to the carpals to the radius, the ulna, the humerus, the shoulder, and just coming together, a skeletal formation of a man. Maybe he was singing the knee bones connected to the thigh bone. And then the tendons and the flesh upon them. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Notice this is a process. First the bones, then the tendons, then the flesh. So it's a recognizable formation of a human being, yet it's lifeless, has no breath. Lifeless humans. Also he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Now God explains the vision. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Something to keep in mind. Keep in mind the exiles who are there at the Kibar River where Ezekiel is performing and functioning as a prophet. He's performing this ministry there. At, at the point of this vision, they are probably at their lowest in terms of trust, hope, and any vision for the future. You see, just before this vision, there was a man that escaped the destruction at Jerusalem and he came all the way to the river Kibar and told Ezekiel, it's over. The nation is destroyed. The city has been wiped out and burned with fire by the Babylonians. They got that news, even though some of them had thought, we won't be here long. Now they know they're going to be there as was prophesied by Jeremiah 70 years and as was fortified by Ezekiel the prophet. So they're at the lowest possible emotional state. And just then, just like the Lord, to come and remind them, oh no, even though you're here, even though you're exiles, and even though your city has been destroyed, you are not utterly cut off. There is future and there is a hope. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. God will resurrect them nationally. God will restore them spiritually, as we will see. And then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves, I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and performed it, 
says the Lord. There is an interesting prediction made by Isaiah that you may want to write in the margin of your Bible or make note of. In Isaiah chapter 11, in the 11th verse, the Lord spoke and He said, It shall come to pass in that day that I will set my hand the second time to restore the captives of Israel and to regather them back from the four corners of the earth. He said he would do it the second time. We know when the first time was. We've been reading about it. It was 70 years after the destruction of the temple, after they were deported into Babylon. God brought them back again into their land. Cyrus gave the command for the Jews to rebuild the temple and to return. And then a command by Artaxerxes, Longimanus, to restore the walls, finish the streets and the city. That was the first time, but the prediction by Isaiah is that they would return the second time, and that second time would be the final time. On May 14th, in 1948, after the United Nations, following the British mandate, made it a point of international law in the United Nations to deem the state of Israel in existence, David Ben-Gurion, on May 15, 1948, stood in Tel Aviv and proclaimed the fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 37. The regathering of the land, the regathering of the people in the land. They were there. It has happened. By God's good grace, we're in the land the second time. I have a friend, he's older now in Israel, and he was young when they just got into the land, and one of the chief archaeologists was digging up on top of Masada. His name was Yigael Yadin. He was one of the uh, archaeologists who dug Masada and dug the Temple Mount and several of the great archaeological digs in that country today. As they were digging on Masada... And they were there in the area of the synagogue. They didn't know what it was. Suddenly they discovered by its configuration and its location, hey, this is the synagogue that existed here that was built on Masada and was probably the last place that the Jewish refugees came from before they took their lives um, after the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. As they were going through the digs there in the synagogue, they discovered a scroll, and they were tipped off. Hey, this must be the synagogue. This must be the scriptorium where the scrolls were buried. But what was most interesting to them wasn't that it was just the synagogue, but the scroll they happened to uncover and look at for the first time in a couple thousand years was the scroll of Ezekiel chapter 37, the vision of the dry bones. They said they stood there with goosebumps as they realized we are living the fulfillment of this prediction in our very lives at this moment in time and space. How exciting. So the dry bones have been reassembled into a recognizable nation. But life still has yet to be breathed within them. For them to live spiritually by the breath 
of the Spirit of God will take a separate and distinct act that we're going to see what it is as we get into the next chapter. God is going to do something in the future that will so convince them that will lead to their national restoration spiritually. Not just physically, spiritually. There will be breath and life within them. Before we move on, though, just a note. Some of you here tonight may be at a point in your life where you're feeling discouraged, down, and you're wondering if God is going to keep His promises to you. If that is the case, you couldn't be in a better chapter. You couldn't be in a better place because just as Israel was saying, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we are cut off. It's too late. We see that God promises to revive, and we have seen it in recent history. God has done what God has said He will do. So take heart. God's promises will be fulfilled. And I don't want to spiritualize it too much, but in much the same way, there is a need today for the Spirit of God to breathe into the dry bones in so many churches across America. Oh, they're there. The, the bones are there. The, the frame, the skeletal part of the organization is there. But a real revival needs to break out. And how does it come? By the Word and by the breath, the Spirit of God. The Word spoken as this prophet prophesied unto the bones and the Spirit of God entering. And only by the Word of God and the Spirit of God can that revival take place. Again, the Word of the Lord came to me saying, As for you, Son of Man, take a stick for yourself and write on it, for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Ephraim being the largest, most notable tribe of the north, Judah being the most notable tribe of the south. Two sticks. Now the term stick is an allusion to a scripture in Numbers, chapter 17, uses the same Hebrew word, and it's translated rod, or it means the scepter. The idea is simple. The independent rulership of two separate nations, north and south. Israel, the ten tribes of the north, Judah, the two tribes in the south. Then join them one to another for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. When the children of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not show us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will become one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write, will be in your hand before their eyes. And say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations wherever they have gone and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, 
on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. Okay, it's very obvious what God is saying. Ezekiel got it. The people he spoke to got it. It was very easy to understand. There's two nations represented by two sticks, two sovereign rulerships, scepters. They have not been united up till this point. They had not been united since 931 B.C. after the reign of King Solomon. The kingdom was split. You know the story. It was divided north and south with Jeroboam in the north, Rehoboam in the south. And the dynastic successions of kings went on and on for generations. Never after that were they united. God is saying that which was divided will once again be united in one place under one sovereign king. There is talk by some of what is erroneously called the ten lost tribes of Israel, as if God could ever lose anything. The ten lost tribes. They say that because in 722 B.C., the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom and took several of those peoples away captive. When in 586 B.C., the Babylonians took the southern kingdom of Judah captive and they returned 70 years later, they say, yeah, they returned, but what about the ten lost tribes? But understand that Babylon took over the whole world including the previous area known as Assyria. And when the mandate came for those people to go back to their land, all of Israel was reckoned, all 12 tribes in Judah, when they returned. So that even in the New Testament, when James writes to the dispersed Jews abroad, he writes to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, greetings. Then in the book of Revelation, we see the new Jerusalem and its foundations and its gates. And we see the 12 tribes of Israel that are mentioned there in the book of Revelation by the 12 gates. Now, the Mormon church says a lot of things. One of the things they say concerning the lost tribes is that the Native American Indians are... The ten lost tribes are a lost tribe of uh, Israel that they escaped the Babylonian captivity just prior to the first exile and they got on ships and they came over here. And they look at this prediction, this prophecy of the two sticks and say that one stick, the stick of Joseph, refers to the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith and his writings. And the other stick is the Bible. And they say, hey, by the mouth of two witnesses, everything will be established. So God is saying that he is establishing the Bible and the Book of Mormon as the two witnesses of the Mormon church. They say, here's their claim, quote, until someone can explain where the record of Joseph is, the Book of Mormon stands unrefuted in its claim to be the stick of Joseph. 
Now, just in case some of you are dabbling in Mormonism, or as I had a dear woman in our church recently just come out of Mormonism and was confused, are you going to trust anyone who would so misinterpret the obvious meaning of the text that way? Because if they're going to take this text and so rest it, as Paul said, or twist it to their own destruction, and make an obvious interpretation, that is, these two divided nations will become one, Judah and Israel, and say, well, it doesn't really mean that, even though it's so plainly stated, but it must mean the Book of Mormon. If they're going to interpret that that way, how could you trust anything that they're going to tell you? It's that plain. Verse 23, They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. God is speaking of the son of David, Jesus Christ. When he says, David, my servant, it's because God promised an everlasting kingdom to the house of David, to the descendants of David. And the fulfillment will be in Jesus Christ, the son of David, of the house of David, of the dynasty of David. He's the one king. He's the future ruler. He is the hope of Israel. There's an interesting book that's out, written by a Jewish fellow, Michael Shapiro. It's called The Jewish 100, The Top Ranking Most Influential Jews in History. Number one on his list, Moses, the lawgiver. Number two on his list, Jesus Christ. Number three, Albert Einstein. Number four, Sigmund Freud. Number six, I believe, is or five is Mary. Six is Paul the Apostle. Number 98 is left-handed pitching great Sandy Koufax. <laughs> That's his list. Number one on God's list, the name given above every name at which everyone will bow and every tongue will confess, the only name given under heaven by which men must be saved is the name Jesus. That's why God says one king, one shepherd, one ruler, Israel will recognize it's Jesus himself. Now I've got to tell you, some people in reading this text, and there's a couple others, believe that David will literally be resurrected to reign over the Jewish people in the millennium. That he will reign as co-regent with Jesus Christ. I prefer to see it as the fulfillment of the promise to David, the fulfillment of the promise to Solomon, that from the house of David, that dynasty, that house, will be in perpetuity, and it's Jesus Christ that is the fulfillment of that. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwell, and they shall dwell there. They, their children, 
and their children's children forever. My servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God. They shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So there's two phases to this, you might say. There's the regathering of the people to the land, and then there's the restoration of the people to the Lord. The first is the bones, and then the flesh and the sinews covering it. And there you have the formation of the nation. But, as we mentioned, there is yet to have breath breathed by God to make these live. If you go to Israel today, you will find committed, zealous, for the most part, a secular humanistic nation. Oh yes, some will acknowledge that they're there by God's will. Some will point to the wars of the past and tip their hat to God intervening on their behalf. But for the most part still, they are very proud of their ingenuity, their military prowess, their inventiveness, their stick to They're there by their hard work. So they are restored to the land. They need to be restored to the Lord. And there is an event coming described in the next chapter. Something's going to happen where they're going to recognize, hey, we didn't do this. This isn't our military that did this. God is on our side. And it's going to tip them toward a restoration of them and an acknowledgement eventually of Jesus being their Messiah. That is an invasion by other nations and the protection that God gives. At the end of Ezekiel 38, he says, I will magnify myself and they shall know that I am the Lord. Now understand that today there is, and we thank God, a restlessness among so many of the Jews in Israel and around the world. A restlessness that what they're experiencing now isn't enough. They know their roots. They know their heritage. But something isn't quite right. And I am so encouraged to see this in Israel. A strong messianic movement that is burgeoning in that country. One Jewish source wrote this some time ago. We're living in an age where people want something more tangible in their religion. Judaism has always been very abstract. It raises more questions than it gives answers. The Jesus movement has all the answers. Interesting admission. Of course, the truth is Jesus himself has all the answers. And they'll discover that. Let's see what happens in Ezekiel chapter 38. It describes an invasion. And then chapter 39, after the invasion and the protection of God, chapter 39 is the cleanup that will occur after the invasion. Now, let me also just say that the events in chapter 38 occur after Israel is restored to the land. They're restored now, in part. After they're restored to the land, but before the millennium. The confusion 
on some people's part is they lump all of this together with the battle of Armageddon. They don't see the clear distinction. They think this is just at the end of the tribulation period, the battle of Armageddon, or they try to place it after the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, where it says, when the thousand years are ended, the bottomless pit is open, Satan and his hordes come out to deceive the nations of Gog and Magog. So they try to put that together. I don't think that's the event. I believe this occurs, obviously, before the millennium. I think it's going to occur prior, perhaps immediately prior, to the tribulation period. It could coincide with the rapture of the church, and it would provide an interesting explanation, especially if there was a nuclear exchange involved, as to the disappearance of the church. So, now, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. These are names that are extracted out of the ancient, what is called the Table of Nations, found in Genesis chapter 10, the the ancient tribal names, the genealogy of Noah and his sons. We can sort of piece together historically who it's speaking about. If you went all the way back to the 8th century B.C. and read a Greek historian by the name of Hesiod, He describes the inhabitants of Magog by their ancient term, the Scythians, who settled, according to Josephus later on, and according to Herodotus, now 5th century B.C., just north of the Caucasus Mountains. According to Herodotus, that's the 5th century Greek historian, wrote several books on history in his fourth book, He mentions Meshech and Tubal and identifies them as the Sarmatians and Mushavites living in the province of Pontus, that is, north of Asia Minor. He writes of the Scythians who terrorized the plains of southern Russia. And any encyclopedia in looking all this up will reveal that the Scythians are the forebearers of what is today modern Russia. And by the way, as we go later on into this, it says they're from the north or the far, the utmost northern parts. So you don't have to know Pliny and Josephus and Herodotus and Hesiod to figure out who it is. You just put your finger on a globe at Israel and go to the utmost parts of the north and you'll end up in Moscow. You'll end up in Russia. So it's easy to piece together who this is speaking about. It's a prophecy directed toward Russia. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around and put hooks in your jaws and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. It could be by this language hooks in the jaws. It could be that there will be somewhat of a reluctance for Russia to get involved in an invasion in Israel. Now, we know in the past they've had an interest for several reasons in the nation of Israel. It's strategic location. It's 
very fertile farmland. It's potash and other minerals that is replete in the Dead Sea. But I don't think that's the hook that will be put into the jaws, but rather it's their more recent alliance, especially in the southern regions of Russia, that is very pro-Islam, very anti-Israel, and has already sided with nations like Iran and Iraq. And I think it's the alliance with the Muslims that will provoke this attack. Well, look at the um, allies that come with it. Persia, that is Iran. Ethiopia, that's ancient Kush. They settled um, just south of the second cascading falls of the Nile. And Libya, that's North Africa, are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. A Jewish scholar in the 19th century, Wilhelm Genesius, speaks of the ancient Kushites, the Ethiopians, that they originally were from the Arabian Peninsula, they were black-skinned, and they eventually migrated to Africa and settled what today we call Black Africa. And then notice that uh, Libya is mentioned. That's North Africa. It includes Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco. So um, North Africa, Black Africa together in alliance with Russia. In 1984, Ethiopia, that's the ancient, uh, the modern name of ancient Kush, became the first Marxist state on the continent of Africa. Libya, of course, with its uh, infamous ruler, Muammar Gaddafi, has been very anti-Semitic. He goes on record as such for a long period of time. And so we can see the alliance and we can see their agreement. Then, verse 6, Gomer. That, of course, was Gomer Pyle from... <laughs> now, Gomer is the ancient name for uh, those that settled in the valley of the Danube. Uh, it is Germany and um, Poland and some of the uh, Slavic nations. Uh, Gomer and all of its troops. Hitler proved in World War II that that part of the world can be swayed to be very anti-Semitic. The house of Togarma, that is the Baltic states, Turkey, Yugoslavia, Romania, from the far north and all of its troops, many people are with you. The Armenians to this day still refer to themselves as the house of Togarma, going back to the ancient name. It includes the Turkish tribes of Central Asia. Now, keep in mind something. When Ezekiel wrote these words 2,600 years ago, these nations, these people groups that existed then had absolutely no common interest, no common bond, and yet he's predicting an alliance that will come in the end times that is anti-Israel. And we can easily see its fulfillment by the pro-Islamic stand in these countries today. Prepare yourself, verse 7. Be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be visited in the latter years. That's a key phrase. You will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend 
coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it will come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates. Now, Ezekiel had never seen unwalled villages. He lived 2,600 years ago where every city, every area that was inhabited had some form of protection, both natural and then added protection, the walls and the gates of a city. But he's looking into the future when there will be no walls, no bars, no gates, and there will be a relative peace. Now, it is interesting If you go to Israel today, once you get there and you walk around the streets, yes, I know about the terrorist attacks, we all know. However, when you're there and you walk around the streets, you think, what's all the hoopla about? It's a great place. You know, there are precautions and uh, there's not walls anymore, but the IDF does have radar beams going around sort of a, uh, a surveillance mode. And that has provided a relative at-easeness to the people who are there. Now, this reference could be a false sense of security that will come upon Israel in the future, or perhaps some temporary peace plan that they think is going to work. Verse 12, to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land, Sheba, Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions will say to you, Have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? Sheba and Dedan are Saudi Arabia. Tarshish, well, there's a dispute. Some think it's Spain, the area of Gibraltar. Others think, and it's probably more accurate, England, Britannia, the land of tin, as it was called in ancient times, and its more ancient name, Tarshish. And if that's true, some take the next phrase, the young lions, to be the offspring of Tarshish, which would be the United States, which would be Canada and Australia, at least in part Canada. Now, these mentioned in this verse seem to be bystanders not agreeing with the invasion, as if to say to Russia and the Islamic allies, what are you doing? You think you're going to get away with this? which is interesting to me that Saudi Arabia would be opposed to the invasion. But it's pretty easy to see how, with their entire economy being based upon oil and the strategic necessity to posture themselves as peaceful in order to keep oil being purchased and sent out of their borders. Again, remember, this is written 2,600 years ago. And this prophet is talking about Russia and the Allies gathering together in an anti-Semitic stance coming to take over Israel. And uh, at a time when 
Russia wasn't any kind of a superpower or a major power at all. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, the chief prince of Magog, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north. There it is, the far north or the utmost parts of the north. You and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. The word horse literally means leaper. Literally translated, the Hebrew word is leaper. It's translated in another couple of scriptures as stork, the bird, stork. It's translated in another scripture as a chariot rider. It's because it's a flexible word, and it simply literally means leaper. There's an interesting article written in Moody Monthly by a scholar named Maxwell Coder, who said of the language in Ezekiel chapter 38 that these terms like horses and bow and arrow are flexible enough so as to include modern technology in warfare. Because Ezekiel and people of that time were restricted by their only means of technology, which was bows and arrows. So horses, literally leapers, could refer to some type of propelled vehicle, forward vehicle like a helicopter, a leaper, or um, some other vehicle. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants the prophets Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? And it will come to pass at that time when Gog comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will be shown in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken, surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beast of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are in the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, Every wall shall fall to the ground. Now, those of us who live in earthquake country get a little nervous when we read verses of Scripture like that. And apparently God will intervene at some point in this, at least in part, at least as something to tip the scales with some kind of an earthquake. I don't know how high on the Richter scale it will be, but you can see it's pretty devastating. Now, keep in mind, nothing historically fits the description of what we're reading. There's never been a time when Scythians invaded Israel and uh, the Lord intervened after they had been regathered. It just doesn't fit historically. It must be something yet future. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. So some internal conflict, some civil war between Russia and the allies of Russia. And I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, 
and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. We've seen God do that in the past, haven't we? This is not unlike or out of character with God. For when Joshua and the children of Israel were fighting in the valley of Ajalon in Joshua chapter 10, God selectively rained down hailstones on Israel's enemy and took them out with his smart bombs from heaven. God has done it in the past and not only here, but God promises in the tribulation period that great hailstones weighing 125 pounds will come careening out of heaven as judgment upon the earth in the final bowl of wrath upon the earth. Ever gone to the store and bought a block of ice? You lift that baby up, it's 25 pounds. Next time you do that, think of one that's 125 pounds and then think of thousands or millions of them coming out of heaven onto the earth. We don't have to guess why. We know from the Old Testament the punishment for blasphemy was stoning to death. In the tribulation period, God will take it in His own hands to stone the world for blasphemy as one of the judgments that will come upon them. So it says flooding rain, great hailstones, and it says fire and brimstone. Now this could refer, this could infer some nuclear type of warfare in the future, fire and brimstone. And I say nuclear because especially of the description of the burying procedures in chapter 39, the cleanup after this intervention by God. That's why I think that this event of the invasion of Russia and these Islamic allies against Israel could happen just prior to the tribulation period simultaneously or around the time of the rapture. And if there's some nuclear exchange, it certainly would give an excuse to the world saying, well, they got killed in this conflagration of nuclear exchange. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself And I will be known in the eyes of many nations. They shall know that I am the Lord. That's a common phrase, isn't it? Fifty-four times in this book we read that over and over again, that they may know that I am the Lord. And it's this event that will cause that worldwide, but especially for the nation of Israel. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. Now we have a discrepancy here in this verse in the New King James as opposed to the original 1611 King James, which says, and I will turn thee back and leave but a sixth part of thee. For some reason, the New King James translators opted for the Septuagint in translating this verse. But the inference here, as so clearly stated in the King James, is that by wiping out five-sixths of the invading army and leaving but a sixth, it's going to get everybody's attention. 
It's going to get the world's attention. And it's going to get Israel's attention. Hey, what God did in our past, what God did in the Six-Day War, what God did in the Yom Kippur War, all of that was lightweight compared to this. The invading army, five, six being destroyed, one, six being left. I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. Now, some think that because, again, they unfortunately placed this battle in the tribulation period. And they say that the weapons of warfare will be so destroyed during the tribulation period that man will revert back to bows and arrows. I don't place this in the tribulation period, but before. And again, as Maxwell Coder said, the language in this chapter is so flexible. Now listen to this. Bow in Hebrew is kesheth, which means literally launcher. Simply means launcher. The word arrow... Katis means piercer. So when this was translated into English in 1611 under King James I, that's the only language in their technological dictionary that they had to portray it. If you were to read this literally, it could be translated this way. I will knock the launchers out of your left hand and cause the missiles or piercers to fall out of your right hand. It would be a perfectly legitimate, pure translation. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey and every sort to the beasts of the field to be devoured. So the army wiped out, left for the carrion, left for the beasts of the field to devour. You shall fall on the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. And I will send fire on Gog or on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Now, the word coastlands is a bit troubling to us who live here on the coastland, because in Hebrew, it actually is, literally, the distant lands. And if you look at Israel today, and you look where we are today, certainly we are the distant lands. And so, some fear that this refers to the United States, thinking that our historic allegiance with the nation of Israel would bring upon a nuclear exchange that could involve the United States. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name any more. Then the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. So this is the event that God uses. This is what chapter 36, chapter 37 were anticipating in the future that would tip the scales, take the blinders off of Israel, and they would turn to the Messiah. Paul in Romans says, Blindness in part has happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Or, as one translation puts it, until the full number of the Gentiles be come in. When God is done bringing in the church in this, the age of grace, there will be the glorious rapture of the church, where instantly we're transformed and in His presence. Then God will once again 
turn his sights and his focus toward his plan and fulfilling his promises to that nation of Israel and bring them back. And this event will tip it off to them that God has been on their side. They'll understand that they were not delivered by their own wits or their military expertise, but God. Surely, verse 8, it is coming. It shall be done, says the Lord. This is the day of which I have spoken. Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and the arrows, the javelins and the spears. They will make fires with them for seven years. Interesting because spears and swords don't burn. And there was nothing at that time that would burn for seven years. They will not take wood from the field or cut down any from the forest because they will make fires with the weapons They will, and they will plunder those who plundered them and pillage those who pillaged them, says the Lord. Now some of the ancient commentators thought that this must be symbolic language because, again, nothing could burn for seven years. This is just not possible especially the whole idea that weapons left over are going to provide an energy source for seven years until the advent of nuclear weaponry. And it is interesting that the um, shelf life of a Soviet production nuclear warhead, I've been told, is seven years. So using the weaponry that was launched against them that didn't go off would provide a source of energy. Uh, There is a scripture I'm going to mention to you in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 12, that ties into this. It describes the effects, perhaps, of this type of warfare. And this shall be the plague, Zechariah 14, 12, with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongue shall dissolve in their mouths. Those who are in the know of these weapons, I've talked to some at Sandia Labs and others, say that this could refer to um, a neutron uh, explosive going off, it keeping intact uh, hardware, but destroying humans in their flesh, leaving just the bones. It will come to pass in that day that I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, that is the Dead Sea, and it will obstruct travelers because there they will bury Gog and all his multitudes. Therefore, they will call it the valley of Hamon Gog, the valley of the multitude of Gog. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Indeed, all the people of the land will be burying, and they will gain renown for it on the day that I am glorified, says the Lord God. They will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party to pass through the land and bury those bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. The search party will pass through the land, and when anyone sees a man's bone, he shall set up a marker by it, until the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hamon Gog. The name of the city will also be Hamonah, 
and they shall cleanse the land. So here's the picture. They're going to wait seven months before they even enter this battle scene, this burial scene. They're going to bury them east of the Dead Sea, as it says the sea here, because it's downwind. They will not touch a bone, but put a marker by it and wait for professional barriers to come in and dispose in the proper way of these bones, probably because of the nuclear contamination that is present. The description is a very modern description of dealing with radioactive hazards. I was uh, in, in Kiev some time back and was there visiting Chernobyl, the Chernobyl Museum. And did you know, and that was a relatively small nuclear exposure, they say, in comparison to what could happen, that after Chernobyl, the milk from cows in Europe were contaminated, had to be disposed of. That's how far-reaching it was. And farmers, hundreds of miles away, disposed of their crops, again, because of nuclear waste. The idea of nuclear exchange would certainly bring contaminants. Now, again, here's Ezekiel the prophet writing about this 2,600 years ago. And I'm sure people, when they heard it, just thought, Ezekiel, what have you been eating or smoking? This is wild. Today, however, in our culture, in our society, when we see the world events, we go, yeah, this is happening. It's just around the corner. I can see it. And as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every sort of bird, to every beast of the field. Assemble yourselves and come, gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you, a great sacrificial meal on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams and lambs, of goats and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. You shall eat fat till you are full and drink blood till you are drunk at my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you. You shall be filled at my table with horses and riders, with mighty men, and with all the men of war, says the Lord God. I will set my glory among the nations. All the nations shall see my judgment, which I have executed, and my hand, which I have laid on them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. This is the final restoration of Israel back to their God. I think after this happens, then the two witnesses will enter the scene. They'll be ripe to hear what those men have to say, because God will have protected the Jews. And 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel will make their commitment and then be used of God for the multitude during the tribulation period. Israel will know that I am the Lord. That's the result. The Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore, I hid my face from them. I gave them into the hand of their enemies, and they all fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgression, I have dealt with them and hidden my face from them. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will bring back the captives of Judah and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. Mark that. Why is God doing all this and being so sure about these promises? Why will God do it? Because His name's on the document. His name's on the contract. It's about His reputation. Back in Ezekiel 36, verse 22 through 24, just a reminder, you may want to just look at it briefly. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. And this is the event that will bring it to pass. And we should be concerned about his name and his reputation. As Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Wherever we go, Whatever we do should be pointing to the glorious, singular name of God. And we should be enhancing His reputation by how we pray and how we live. After they have borne their shame and all their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me when they dwell safely in their own land, and no one made them afraid, when I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' lands, and I am hollowed in them in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God who sent them into captivity among the nations, but also brought them back to their land and left none of them captive any longer. And I will not hide my face from them any more, for I shall have poured out my Spirit on the house of Israel says the Lord God. Today, if you wanted to immigrate to Israel, if you could prove that at least your mother is Jewish, you could be an Orthodox Jew, you could be a secular humanist, you could be a complete atheist, and you could immigrate to Israel. One thing you could not be, even proving that your mother is Jewish, if you go into the immigration and you say, I am a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, red flag goes up, you'll have trouble. I'm happy to say those days are coming to an end. And the time will be that the name of Jesus Christ, Israel's Messiah, And the world's Savior, for those who have trusted in Him, will be hallowed in that nation. Let's pray. Lord, You are so good. We have seen some in their own lifetime the fulfillment of Your promises in bringing Israel back to that piece of real estate in the Middle East. And the nation of Israel exists today. And some here, Lord, are struggling, doubting, discouraged, 
I pray, Father, that what we have read tonight would strengthen the feeble knees and the hands that hang down. And we would see that such a God who made these promises is trustworthy. And that we would rest in you and rest in your plan for us. It is perfect as you are perfect. Thank you for your word, Lord. We're so encouraged by seeing these things that have come to pass, knowing that what we have read in this last portion will soon come to pass. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we stand? It might be that when you get home, you'd like to read Romans chapter 11, in which Paul the Apostle deals with this time when God will again open the eyes of the nation of Israel to the truth of Jesus Christ. Interesting that they have materials to burn for seven years. God has a seven-year covenant with Israel that is yet unfulfilled. It's called the 70th week of Daniel. And as we move into Daniel in a few weeks now, we'll be coming to that uh, covenant that God has with Israel. Sixty-nine of the seven-year cycles have been fulfilled, but that 70th is yet to be fulfilled. And uh, again, when God pours His Spirit upon the nation of Israel, that precludes the church being here. Right now, God's Spirit is upon His church, upon the Gentiles, the Gentile believers. And God is drawing out from among them the bride for Jesus Christ. But uh, it's exciting days that we're living in. And again, as is pointed out in the scriptures tonight, we're getting close. Close to the coming of Jesus Christ for his church, commonly referred to as the rapture of the church. And Jesus talking about this, read it in Matthew 24, 25, as he talks about his coming for the church, his parables that deal with his coming have to do with your preparedness, your being ready, not knowing the day or the hour, being prepared at all times for those that were ready went in. So exciting days and uh, it's just interesting to watch God's word being fulfilled before our very eyes. Again, as we spoke a couple of Sundays ago, what will it take to make you a believer? How far does it have to progress until you say, Oh, I see. My, God did write the book. And it is true. (laughs) I hope you don't wait too long. Because you might then recognize what God said was going to happen in Revelation chapter 6, and you don't want to be there when that takes place. So now is the time of salvation. Pastors are down here at the front. They're here to minister to you tonight. Spiritual needs? Yes. Physical needs? Of course. God wants to be everything to you. And the promise of the word is, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus our Lord. So they're here to pray for you and to minister to you tonight 
if there is a need that you have and you want to just bring it to the Lord, they would be very happy to join you in prayer, agree with you in prayer that God will indeed work. And then this week we'll have the thrill and joy of watching God do his work in our hearts and in our lives. May the Lord watch over you, keep you in his love, fill you with his spirit, and cause you to experience wonderful victories in Jesus Christ this week for his glory. Sing alleluia to the Lord. Sing alleluia to the Lord. Sing alleluia, sing alleluia, sing alleluia to the Lord. Sing alleluia to the Lord. Sing alleluia to the Lord. Sing alleluia, sing alleluia, sing alleluia to 